Turn with me, please, to our sermon text. It is Galatians chapter 4, verse 21 through 5, 1. 4, 21 through 5, 1 of Galatians. Um, this sermon is coming to you in two parts. Um, the first part will be uh, this week, and the uh, second part will be next time we are in Galatians. This was too much material to cover in one uh, on one occasion, and yet it all belongs together, so it is really one sermon, uh, though preached on two separate occasions. So, but this, I'm reading the, for the entire uh, sermon, uh, this whole text. Matthew, excuse me, um, the Galatians, rather, 4.21, the word of the Lord. Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman, and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking. For these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now, this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Amen. Pray with me. O Lord, we covet your help in this time. I, as the expounder of your word, uh, the folks here in the room as the hearers, uh, Lord, there is uh, 
a need for your aid, especially now, because there's room for much mischief here. Uh, Please help us to hear what is true, what is right, what is biblical, what is your your truth. We pray that you would use it uh, in our lives um, today and in subsequent days and weeks ahead. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Children, uh, where's Tegan? There she is, right behind Miss Natalie. Uh, Kids, do you know what a slave is? Do you know what a slave is? You've heard the term, right? A slave? Okay. Well, a slave is someone who is, well, he or she is controlled by another person, but there's a sense in which he or she is owned by another person. At least their labor is owned by another person. They are a slave. They belong, in some sense, at least their their ability to work, belongs to another person. So they are slaves to a master. Well, people can be enslaved to other people, but as we're going to learn in this text that we're looking at here today, this evening, People can also be enslaved, that is, that means to be a slave to. You can be a slave to another person, but you can also be enslaved or be a slave to an idea that is a bad idea. Okay? And that's what this text is actually about here. It's the dangers of being enslaved to a bad idea, which happens to be a false gospel. And the people that Paul is talking to in this letter were, as we know, as we've been working our way through this, were either already enslaved to a false gospel or were on the verge, many of them, of of believing a false gospel that was preached by these men called Judaizers who claimed to be Christians, but they weren't Christian at all. They said they believed in Jesus, but really they believed in uh, works religion getting into heaven by their good works. And so, we're going to talk about slavery uh, quite a bit in this sermon, and so that's why I brought that up to you. uh, And hope that will help you in figuring out what's going on here. So, prior to the writing of uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians, uh, certain men, uh, this is by way of review, men who were again claiming to be Christian teachers, Uh, But they were of Jewish background and had been grown up in Judaism, but now claimed to have Jesus, believe in Jesus as the Messiah. But they had come to the Galatian churches and had been going around to those churches, the various congregations, proclaiming a message that was essentially that one is justified, that is, pardoned of his sin and made acceptable in the sight of God, justified by faith plus good works, a combination of faith in Christ plus their own good works, specifically works that uh, were, that uh, Jews of that day said were defined as good works, uh, which we're going to call, and which Paul calls, works of the law. Uh, and these Judaizers, these men, were proclaiming this, this uh, doctrine, faith plus good works gets you right before God, uh, to the Galatians uh, uh, that Paul is writing to. And Paul tell, uh, these men were telling their Galatian readers, 
their audiences rather, that the message that Paul had preached to them earlier on, uh, namely that justification is by faith alone in Christ alone, that that was a somewhat defective message, that it was not quite right. Paul, uh, uh, there was something missing. Paul tried, but but he he got a few things wrong, and so they were here to kind of clarify what was what was the exact message. And they told the churches in Galatia that their Judaizing version of the gospel was more in line with what the apostles down in Jerusalem were proclaiming, which of course the very opposite was true. It was Paul who was proclaiming the gospel, believed and taught by the other 12 apostles. And the gospel advocated by the Judaizers was heresy of the first order. It was a damnable heresy. It was one which, if believed, would damn the soul of the person who believed it. Um, And so it struck at the very heart of the true biblical gospel. And again, there were apparently a significant number of professing Christians in Galatia who were attracted to their message, the Judaizers' message. They apparently found the idea of being under law, using Paul's words there in verse 21, they found the idea of being under law, uh, under the Mosaic law still in some sense, rather appealing. They were they, they liked that idea. They were comforted somehow by the idea of being under law. The thought of putting God in their debt as a result of some law-keeping that they uh, succeeded in, that appealed to these people. And that's what you're doing when you're saying, God, if I do this, if I do such and such, X, Y, Z, then you've got to do this. Again, you're making God your debtor. And that is what uh, works religion always does, and that is one of its greatest appeals, is God owes me. And so I'm quite confident that uh, for most of these folks who were attracted to this message, it was that idea that attracted them to works religion, to being under law and legalism. Paul wrote this letter, of course, in order to persuade those who were on the fence, to persuade them to reject the false gospel of the Judaizers and reaffirm their faith in the message that Paul had preached, which was the the truth. And he uses a number of different arguments to make his case. We uh, talked about, reviewed those last time we were together in Galatians. And at this point, Paul here in his letter challenges those of his readers who wish to be under the Mosaic law as a religious principle, to hear what the law itself says. He essentially says, you who are such great fans of the law, why don't you listen to your own law? The law of Moses. And hear what it has to say about the lives of Abraham's two sons. And then he recalls, Paul does, certain details about the lives of those two sons, which we're going to look at here in a minute, and then he proceeds to expound the spiritual meaning of those uh, two lives, namely Ishmael, uh, Isaac and Ishmael. So, we're only going to look at the first point today. second point comes next week. So, we're going to first look at the life of Ishmael and uh, uh, in the first point, and other things as well, Hagar and uh, Jerusalem and so on. Um, and the other point will come next time we're together in this passage. So, here's the for- first point. If you are trusting at all 
in your own efforts at law-keeping, and this sounds familiar, I know, but it's a refrain that goes throughout the entire book of Galatians. If you're trusting in your own efforts at all, at law-keeping, to make you acceptable to God, then you are a spiritual child of Hagar, the slave woman. You are a spiritual child of Hagar, the slave woman. And of course, if you're looking to Christ alone, which is the point that's coming next time, uh, for your acceptance before God, you are a spiritual child of Sarah, the free woman. And we'll look at that next time we're together. But today we're talking about Hagar and her offspring, uh, Ishmael. God in his providence, uh, 4,000 years ago, caused the life experience of Hagar, uh, Abraham's concubine, and of her son, Ishmael, to typify one of the two spiritual categories into which all human beings fall. And he arranged this. He, of course, knew that he, what Paul was going to write some 2,000 years later, um, and uh, he uh, arranged that this should happen and these lives should be lived this way uh, for, among other reasons, so that Paul could make the point that he makes here in Galatians. Hagar was Abraham's slave. Um, First and foremost, he was a slave who was uh, given really to uh, uh, more Sarah's slave in some sense because she she served uh, Sarah, uh, but 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 because Abraham was the head of the household, it was his slave as well, and in every aspect of Hagar's life, it w- was informed by her status as a slave. She was enslaved. Children, we you know, what I talked about a moment ago. She was owned in effect by Sarah and and uh, and. Her labor was by Sarah and Abraham. Now Ishmael, who was her son by Abraham, was also a slave. He, Ishmael, was born into slavery on account of who and what his mother was, which was a slave, which made him a slave. He came into this world Not only was he born into slavery because of his mother's condition, but he also came into this world. He was born, conceived and born, on account of, and this is very important, an unwillingness on his father's part, and also his father's wife Sarah's part, but especially Abraham's part, his unwillingness to believe God and trust God. He didn't trust God when he went in to be with Hagar. And Sarah certainly didn't trust God when she offered Hagar up to Abraham. Back in Genesis 15, God had promised Abraham that he would give him a son. He was, as I was telling the children on the way here, because uh, uh, Olivia, rather, on the way here, um, he was at the time when he spoke, when God spoke to him in Genesis 15, he was married to Sarah. And God said, you're going to have a son. That, that implied clearly that Sarah was to be, because he, she was the only legitimate spouse to Abraham, that she would be the mother of this son that God was going to provide him with. But when Sarah failed to conceive after a considerable period of time, Abraham's ability to trust God's promise to him began to fade. And it faded 
So much so that at the urging of Sarah, his also um, faithless on this occasion, his faithless wife, at the urging of Sarah, Abraham decided to take matters into his own hands by lying with Sarah's handmaid, Hagar. And all sorts of bad things ensued as a result of that. The result of this carnal, fleshly, unbelieving attempt to help God out was Ishmael. Now, as Olivia pointed out, that wasn't Ishmael's fault. Well, no, it wasn't. But Ishmael was the product of their sin, their multiple sins. And so he becomes representative of the problems that ensue when we don't trust God and we take matters into our own hands and become legalists uh, looking to law rather than to God uh, for uh, blessing. Because of the manner in which Ishmael was conceived, he came to represent any and all attempts to achieve something through human effort rather than dependence upon the Lord. So let's talk about, in what sense, a person who is trusting in his own efforts at law-keeping to make him acceptable to God, in what sense that person is a child of Hagar? Let's talk about that here. Well, first of all, like Hagar and Ishmael too, by the way, both really uh, represent it together, uh, like the two of them, a person who is trusting in his own efforts at law-keeping to make him acceptable to God is in bondage is enslaved. Hagar and Ishmael were physical slaves. If you're trusting even slightly in your own efforts to obey God's law, your own efforts to obey God's law to make you right with God, to get you God's forgiveness and to make you acceptable in his sight, then you too are a slave. You're not a physical slave like Hagar and Ishmael were. You're a spiritual slave. You're enslaved to a wicked idea, which is you can earn God's favor uh, and your, his, your forgiveness and your entrance into heaven by your uh, dog and pony show before God. You are enslaved to the law in that you are, in a couple of ways, you're enslaved because to the the principle that is found in the law of Moses, which is, uh, do this and live. And the opposite is equally true and implied in the do this and live, and that is, don't do this and die. Not only... um, is that a reason that, uh, that you're enslaved um, to the law? Because you're enslaved to this principle that you can't keep. You can't do this, which by the do this is perfectly keep the law and live. By not perfectly keeping the law, you were enslaved. You become a, a, a subject to death. And that, that is, a, that is, a, that is a, a slavery if ever there was slavery. But there's another thing. 
You are also enslaved to the law in that you are subject to its condemnation. Now, I, I kind of already touched on that by my last point. Um, but you're enslaved not only to the principle of works religion, but you're enslaved to the condemnation and punishments for violations of that law, which is death and hell. So that's one way in which a person who's trusting in his ability to keep the law to make himself acceptable to God as a child of Hagar and Ishmael. Uh, although Ishmael's, yeah, let's just stick with Hagar. But there's another way, too. And that is um, in which you are like Hagar's son. Uh, and that is both Ishmael's existence, how he came into being, and your hope of being accepted by God if you're if you're under the law and have placed yourself under the law as your hope, both of those things, Ishmael's existence and your hope of being accepted by God, are dependent upon human effort rather than supernatural grace. Ishmael came about by human effort, by not trusting God, as a result of not two people not trusting God. Um, and so too is uh, your... Uh, hope of being accepted by God. You are not trusting in God for your uh, acceptance, namely God the Son, through whom alone you can be accepted before God. You're trusting in your, your paltry attempts at being moral. And you are enslaved. You are like Hagar. You are like her child, Ishmael, as well. So let's consider who else and what else, because the text goes here, uh, corresponds to the spiritual bondage of works religion. The the text points to uh, a few different things uh, that are um, that correspond to the spiritual bondage of works religion. The first thing that corresponds to that spiritual bondage of works religion is the covenant that God made with Israel. At Mount Sinai. Now this is interesting. Listen to this before you go, wait a minute, something's wrong here. Just wait for a second. The covenant made with God at Mount Sinai, we're going to call it the Mosaic Covenant, or the Mosaic Covenant, Mosaic Administration of the One Covenant of Grace. Uh, But the Mosaic Covenant um, was an example of this spiritual bondage. Now this does not mean, I want It's very important, especially for Trey, but for everyone, to hear that that does not mean that that covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, was a republication of the covenant of works. It was not. Emphatically, it was not a republication of the covenant of works. Yes. The Sinaitic, or Mosaic Covenant, was one of several administrations of the one covenant of grace, as I just said, So it, too, was fundamentally gracious. Fundamentally gracious, Mosaic Covenant was. However, however, in spite of its gracious underpinnings and core, Paul sees a degree of bondage in that covenant or that administration. Why? Why does he see bondage there? Or how is it that he sees bondage there? Because there is definitely no doubt, all you have to do is open to the first five books of the Bible, there is definitely a works element in the Sinaitic Covenant, in the Mosaic Covenant. 
there is a strong emphasis on God's law and on man's need, I should say the believer, well, all of mankind, but especially the believer's need to keep the law within that covenant. Not as a means of justifying oneself before God, not as a means of being forgiven or accepted in God's sight, but as a means of forcing sinners to abandon, and even believers who might be tempted to go back to the pigsty, forcing sinners to abandon any hope of, of justifying themselves before God through their own efforts, and also as a means of motivating them to place their sole hope in the only man who ever could or would perfectly keep God's law, and that was the promised Messiah who hadn't come yet, who was Jesus of Nazareth. So because of the strong legal component, shall we say, of the gracious Mosaic Covenant, uh, and because of the, 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 uh, the effects of that, uh, forcing us to uh, uh, abandon any hope of saving ourselves by that law, uh, and also motiv- motivating us to look to the law keeper that God provided, Paul says there is bondage here of a sort. So, in this sense, the Mosaic Covenant, again, corresponds to the spiritual bondage of works religion to a degree. There's a second um, thing, if you will, that corresponds to the spiritual bondage of works religion, and that is the earthly Jerusalem of Paul's day and also that city's spiritual children of Paul's day. Jerusalem, in, as Jesus uh, and Paul, the, the first, first century Jerusalem, stood for, Paul says, it stood for in his day the perverted Judaism, not biblical Judaism, but a per, the perverted Judaism of that day with its trust in um, genealogical descent from, or biological descent from Abraham, and its reliance on legal observance as the way of being acceptable to God. That is what was being taught by the rabbis uh, of that day. It was not Old Testament religion. It was a perversion of it. And so Paul says that earthly Jerusalem is an example of the bondage of works religion. That city at that, in that day represented that. Her spiritual children were all those who adhered to the law, even the good law of Moses, as their means of being justified before God and forgiven by God. That city and all those who, like its inhabitants, had that view, were in bondage and corresponded to the works uh, to the spiritual bondage of works religion. And then the third thing that Paul mentions that corresponds with the spiritual bondage of works religions are the Judaizers themselves. Why? It's pretty obvious why. Because uh, they were, they too saw obedience to the Mosaic law. Well, actually, to the to the rabbinical uh, accretions and and additions to and and um, interpretations of that Mosaic law is probably a better way to put it. They saw those that obedience as their means of being right with God. 
Oh yes, they gave lip service to their need or one's need to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Yeah, yeah, he was the Messiah. And yet, you know, yes, you have to believe that he was. They would have certainly uh, uh, chimed in with that, but that really wasn't the focus of their message. And besides, like I've said so many times, the moment you add anything to Jesus as your hope of right standing before God, Jesus and his atoning works, life, death, resurrection, ascension, you no longer have Christ. You no longer have a Jesus who is saving you. You never had him to begin with, regardless of what uh, your church or what you might say. So, once again, Paul is beating this drum. Uh, and he's, this is just yet another argument that he's marshalling against the Judaizing message and the works religion that is, characterizes every other religion other than Christianity, true Christianity, in the world that I'm aware of. And he's saying to these Judaizers who were so fond of the Mosaic law, look at your own law. And see the point of the gospel in your own law. So, by way of conclusion here, we of course need to ask ourselves, even though we're all professing Christians in this room, am I trusting even slightly in my own efforts to obey God's law as a means of making me acceptable to God and of getting my sins pardoned, and of getting myself into heaven. I trust and hope that nobody in here is thinking that way, but there's always a slim possibility. If you are, then you are in bondage to works religion. Uh, You are a spiritual child of Hagar, like Ishmael, enslaved, and you're on the road uh, to destruction. You need to repent of your Dependence upon yourself for anything. And it's a prideful uh, belief that you have uh, in yourself. And you need to abandon that completely. And uh, you need to repent and you need to cast yourself at Christ, uh, uh, at the mercy of Christ. If, and here it's more likely to be applicable to us who are in this room, if you are trusting in Jesus alone to save you, to justify you and uh, to make you right with God, have your sins pardoned. Um, And you're not trusting in your own efforts. Ask yourself this, so you're a Christian, but ask yourself this, is my day-to-day walk with Christ, uh, I can't think of a better word than this, but um, infused with or informed by, that's maybe what I'm trying to say, informed by God's grace. Or, to put it another way, does the grace of God and the freedom associated with that grace, does that pervade your life? Are you living under and experiencing grace in your life? Not license, but grace. The grace of God. Is your relationship with God characterized by grace, or is it characterized, even though you're a Christian, day-to-day, is it characterized by performance, 
uh, mentality. I've got to perform for God. Now again, don't get me wrong. The sermon this morning said, yes, we have to obey. If we love God, we're trusting God, the way we show that is by striving to obey. So in no way am I, uh, is, does Paul or am I uh, negating what was said this morning. But we obey, we need to obey mindful of God's grace. We need to, we need to obey not with a, um, a legalistic mentality, for lack of a better way of putting it. And one of the ways you can tell whether or not your, your life is characterized by a works mentality, by a legalistic, uh, uh, your Christian life is kind of legalistic, is one of the ways you can tell is by evaluating what is my, atti- what is your, what is my attitude after I've asked for God's forgiveness for something. So once you have, if you've sinned, you've committed some sin, you become aware of it, you ask God, you come before the Lord and you because you know you need to confess your sins and you confess your sins to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I was wrong. I should not have said that or thought that. I should not have done that. It was evil. It grieved your heart. I'm sorry. Would you please forgive me? And would you please give me grace to walk in new obedience? If after having a prayed a prayer in effect like that, what happens, what's your attitude, what are your thoughts after you've prayed that prayer? Do you experience the freedom that Paul talks about there in verse 5? Uh, verse 1 of chapter 5? Um, do, you, do you experience the freedom, the relief, I'll, pu- I'll describe it as relief, that you are, once again, you're, the fellowship that was hindered by your sin, your fellowship with the Lord, has been restored? Or do you still labor under guilt? I think that's a indicative of a, 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 a problem. A problem. That you don't have a sufficient grasp on God's grace in your life. It needs to inform your life as you obey the Lord and as you confess your sins and as you walk uh, in God's calling that he has called you to. We need to be um, steeped in God's grace, not in a licentious way, but we need to be steeped in God's grace and ask God for the grace. If, if, you, if you need some work in this area, I probably do, actually. We need to pray and say, Lord, please help me to better grasp what it means to live by grace. To be free, truly free, and feel free and relieved and released from the the, the guilt and, of course, obviously already have been the punishment of our sins because of what Christ did for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage that reminds us of what we, of a mindset we shouldn't have, one that um, is analogous to uh, Ishmael, Hagar's son, and the earthly Jerusalem of Paul's day and the Judaizers. 
Lord, we pray that you would deliver us from the remnants of legalism that may be infecting uh, some uh, or most of us here tonight. Would you please help us to grasp better, and by that I mean to experience more completely what it means to be under grace rather than under law. Would you help us uh, make strides in this journey uh, to a grace-centered life? And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. God's blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all, both now and forevermore. Amen.